Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Live from our nation's capital. How do we reopen this economy? The latest on how this pandemic is impacting farmers. What does this do for the United States relationship with China? Bloomberg Sound Off. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We're responding to this crisis and manufacturers are stepping up like never before. We're looking at 70 candidates for different vaccines. How do we make sure a pandemic of this scale never happens again? This is Bloomberg Sound Off with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Jobs Day and better than expected numbers and the political chatter as President Trump faces election fallout after reportedly insulting uh, troops. Uh, we're going to check in with the Trump campaign. We're also going to ch- check in with Maddie Duffler and an exclusive conversation with the one and only David Rubenstein on his new book. It is a brilliant new book about lessons in leadership. Yeah, you got to check it out. Uh, and he tells us what Lauren Michaels, Oprah Winfrey, Condoleezza Rice, RBG, and Coach K, what do they all have in common? We'll get to that too. But first, let's get a check of the headlines from my good friend Nancy Lyons. Nance? Thanks, Kevin. President Trump is denying an Atlantic report that says he canceled a 2018 visit to a French cemetery where American troops are buried, saying, Why should I go to that cemetery? It's filled with losers. No, it's a fake story written by a magazine that was uh, probably not going to be around much longer. His former national security advisor, John Bolton, tells Bloomberg Radio to him the Atlantic story is believable. I have not heard anybody say that the remarks attributed to him, which I'll just repeat, I did not hear. But I have not heard anybody say, oh, that doesn't sound like the Donald Trump I know. Democratic presidential hopeful Joe Biden says it is disgraceful if the reports of the president's comments are true. The coronavirus pandemic is impacting the University of Maryland athletic program. As Bloomberg's Amy Morris reports, the school is suspending all athletic activities. The athletic department brought student-athletes back to campus in June for summer workouts and has been periodically testing them. The Baltimore Sun reports the school found a spike in coronavirus cases, 46 positive tests on 10 different teams. Student-athletes will be tested again on Tuesday. The University of Maryland resumed classes this week, many of them online. The Big Ten Conference in August announced it would postpone fall sports. Amy Morris, Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. The Washington football team is releasing running back Adrian Peterson. ESPN's Diana Rossini says his age was the issue. Talking to a source in Washington right now, and he said, for us, it's really just because we like our younger guys. It's really just about an age thing for us and the fit. And for us, it's time to move on. Peterson is 35 years old. On Wall Street, it was a down day. The Dow fell 159 points to 28,133. The Nasdaq lost 145 points at 11,313. The S&P was down 28 points. Global news 24 hours a day on air and on Bloomberg Quick Take, powered by more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. I'm Nancy Lyons. Back to you, Kevin. Thank you, Nancy. My name is Kevin Surley. I'm the chief Washington correspondent 
uh, for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg uh, Radio. A, a wicked day on Wall Street as the pickup in U.S. employment complicates talks on fiscal stimulus, and plus the S&P 500 posting their worst week since June. We have complete policy coverage and the political fallout coming up throughout the program. But I want to begin with a special conversation with someone who knows a thing or two about how Washington and Wall Street collide. And that is, of course, a man who needs no introduction. His name is David Rubenstein. He is the founder and co-executive chairman of the Carlyle Group. He is also the host of the David Rubenstein Show on Bloomberg Television. And he's got this great new book called How to Lead, Wisdom from the World's Greatest CEOs, Founders, and Game Changers. And what he did was he took the TV show on Bloomberg Television and turned it into a book that chronicles some of America's greatest leaders. Take a listen to our conversation. Well, all of them are people that know how to share the credit. They all overcame, um, I would say, uh, problems in their, in their life because they all had failed at something or another, they couldn't succeed at everything they did. And they all, in the end, I think, learned how to create people to follow them by being a really effective leader in whatever they did. They mastered a skill, and they had other people follow them. And I want to thank you at Bloomberg for helping make this possible, because my show on Bloomberg is really what led to the book. Uh, Virtually all of the interviews were done originally on peer-to-peer on Bloomberg TV, and then I've uh, edited them down a little bit with the help of the people I interviewed with, interviewed, and then I summarized them a little bit. So really, Bloomberg is very uh, much involved in, in the book. And, you know, I, I think it's it's fascinating just to see your background, of course. Uh, you also, of course, wrote The American Story. And where do you find time to write? I mean, where do you find time to do all of these things, given your 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 other job, which, of course, with the Carlisle Group? Yeah. Well, um, I'm uh, probably not that good an athlete, so I don't probably spend that much time <laughs> playing golf or, or, uh, or tennis. And, um, you know, this is what I do. I enjoy. So uh, when, when you're doing the kind of things I'm doing, I, I, I don't think it's work. In other words, if you love what you're doing, it's not work. I love everything I'm doing. I'm now financially in a position where I don't have to do anything, but I want to do the things that give me the greatest pleasure. And interviewing gives me a lot of pleasure. Uh, writing a book gives me a lot of pleasure. But uh, the reason I wanted to do this book is I wanted to inspire younger people to read about people who are leaders today and say, yes, I could do what they did, and I can figure out how to overcome obstacles, and I would like to be a leader like these people. So I hope that people will get that uh, out of the book. And I'm giving all the proceeds uh, that the author would get to the Johns Hopkins Children's Center. I'm on the board of Johns Hopkins Medicine. I think it did a wonderful job, and I do think that uh, it's a worthy cause. You know, David, I, I, when I was looking at this book and reading about it, one of the, the you know, I, I often think of one of a similar book, Profiles and Courage, which, uh, of course, was by JFK. It won the Pulitzer. It launched many, think, uh, helped him ascend through the political ranks. But from your perspective, what are some of the nuanced tips that people can apply in their day-to-day lives? You know, I think of General McRaven saying, make your bed, make your bed every morning. What are some of those daily tips and, and tidbits that people can, can practically implement in their day-to-day? Try to focus on one thing. Make one skill your own so you're the master at it. So don't try to do everything at once. Try to master one thing. Also, don't be upset if something doesn't work out. You'll learn a lot from that. Also, try to explain to other people what you're doing. You can't be a leader without followers. You have to get other people to follow you. And I also think you should uh, continuously read. People have to exercise their brain all the time. 30% of American college graduates never read another book in their life after they graduate from college. Wow. They exercise their brain. You've got to keep exercising your brain. Learn, learn, learn. And in the end, 
um, I, I do think that you have to make your own luck a little bit. Uh, luck is very important, but you can make your luck by making good contacts, by learning how to get along with people, and by sharing the credit. Ronald Reagan famously said, there's no limit to what humans can accomplish if they're willing to share the credit. And All right, what, do, what did you learn from Lorne Michaels of Saturday Night Live? I learned that here's a man, for 45 years, he's been producing one of the most popular TV shows, and he's still as enthusiastic as he, I imagine he was 45 years ago. But he's also told me, and he said in the book, humor has changed over the last 45 years. Things that were funny 20 years ago, you can't make fun of today. So he's had to evolve it all the time. And he has to keep uh, everybody's ego in check. He's got a lot of famous people on that show. All of them think they're the most important person or the funniest person. <laughs> but he's managed to do that, and he's managed to do it, like he says, by listening to other people. He he, he, does, he takes the best ideas. He doesn't say, I'm Lauren Michaels. This is the way we're going to do it. He listens to people for their ideas, and he takes the best idea. So he's quite impressive what he's achieved in, in, in that 45 years, I think. When I opened the book, I went right to that chapter because I think especially now in an election cycle, everybody needs to laugh, and it's a fascinating look. All right, I got a couple more people I want to go through. What about Condoleezza Rice? What makes a good leader for Condoleezza Rice? Condoleezza Rice was somebody that grew up in a segregated South. She went to the University of Denver, and it turns out her professor was actually Madeleine Albright's father, and he inspired her to go into foreign policy. And she ultimately became very close to George W. Bush, became his national security advisor and then his secretary of state. But she had originally thought she was going to be a classical pianist, and she still is very accomplished in that area. And she's a person who I think has overcome a lot of disadvantages. And she grew up in a segregated South. Uh, the chances for an African-American woman to become what she became were very, very limited when she was growing up. And she's quite, quite impressive, very smart, very charming, and a real interesting person to interview. And finally, this will be the last one, Coach K. Well, I, uh, and just before, I, before, I got to be honest here. I'm not a Duke basketball fan, but I do okay. respect Coach where, K. Where, you, where'd you go to school? You went to UNC or something? No, like I went that? to Penn State, which doesn't really even have Penn a good State. football team. No Nittany Lions can get mad at me, but you know, I always rooted for UNC because I liked Michael Jordan. But anyway, go ahead. Okay. Well, um, I went to Duke. I was the chairman of the board for a number of years, and I, I've gotten to know Coach K quite well. And he's, he's great. I mean, <laughs> now I'm going to put it all back in my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Five national championships, three Olympic gold medals. Legend. And he's a guy that he's had to change because in the old days you recruit a Grant Hill. He would stay there for four years. Christian Leitner stayed there for four years. Now every year he's in his early 70s. He has to go recruit 17-year-olds and really for just one year. So he's got to go re keep recruiting all the time. It's changed a lot. But he's really made a lot of impressive people um, out of his program become successful adults. And, I mean, he, he kind of molds 17- 18-year-olds very few of whom are actually going to be NBA superstars. Most of them are going to go into different types of living, uh, a different type of life. But he's actually made a lot of very impressive people out of that program. And it's his, his tribute to Coach Thompson of, of Georgetown, who, of course, passed away uh, yes. just the other week, was just so moving. And, and, and that's, you know, any, any athlete or coach that can really capture the human condition in athletics, and that's really what you touch upon in, in, as the thread uh, through many of your, of your chapters, uh, it, it, it's really, really remarkable. I, I just want to ask you, just from your perspective, David, uh, you grew up in Baltimore and you've ascended to right. the top of the ranks in the financial world, in the political world, and now in the author world. What's one piece of advice that you would give yourself at the age of 30 when you were just starting out that you maybe wish you would have known or wish you would have focused on uh, back when you were just starting out? Well, don't be upset if things don't work out all the time. They, they, you know, just be passionate and find something you love. When I was 30, uh, the 31, 
uh, Jimmy Carter lost his reelection. So I was a White House aide, and I was now out of a job, and I had to go recreate my career. And I had to start from the bottom again. And, you know, it was uh, difficult to be a White House aide one day and then starting off at the bottom of a law firm. But I did it, and ultimately I found something I really love, which is business and ultimately philanthropy. So, uh, you know, don't despair if, if roadblocks hit you. You know, if you work hard, you can overcome almost anything. David Rubenstein, we're going to leave it there. He, he of course, is the founder much. and co-executive chairman of the Carlisle Group, host of The David Rubenstein Show on Bloomberg Television, and the author of the must-read new book, How to Lead, Wisdom from the World's Greatest CEOs, Founders, and Game Changers. More next. I'm Kevin Cirilli. This is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Rough day on Wall Street, but some good economic news, folks, as it relates to the unemployment rate, which really did beat expectations. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Let's head right into the Bloomberg Terminal. August increase in Americans entering the labor market helped drive the unemployment rate down almost two percentage points to 8.4%, better than all economists' estimates, though still well above the pre-crisis level. Employers added 1.37 million people to payrolls, about one-sixth of whom were temporary workers for uh, the uh, census, census that we had had. So all of this now sets up a fascinating dynamic as we inch closer to Election Day and, of course, the fiscal stimulus uh, issue as well. Hogan Gidley's on the line. He returns to the program. He is Trump 2020 National Press Secretary. Hogan, welcome back to the program. Thank you, sir, for your time. 8.4% unemployment rate beat expectations. Absolutely. Uh, I think it's a, a great day for this country, a great day for the president's policies. It's an exclamation point on what we've seen. It's been a difficult time uh, with the coronavirus, but we're starting to claw our way back. The president rebuilt this economy once, so we know he's doing it again. The last four months have been historic job growth in this country, shattering expectations. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting to watch with 1.4 million jobs. It's the fourth highest one month job gain in U.S. history. Uh, very impressive, and it's good for the people. There are still a lot of a lot of citizens across this country hurting because of businesses being shut down and, and slow to reopen. Uh, we understand that. We're far from finished, but we've literally gained back almost half of the jobs 
that were lost, 48% have been gained back. That's good news. Uh, it's a great indicator of where this economy is headed. Uh, and while we were at record highs before coronavirus, we expect to make even new highs afterward. Of the major private sector industries, folks, just to, to dive into the numbers a little bit, uh, retail added the most jobs, 249,000 jobs for retail, 249,000 jobs in retail, particularly in general merchandise and motor vehicles. A lot of people buying cars. Restaurants and bars, along with temporary help services, also accounted for a significant part of the hiring. Hogan, I want to get in the weeds here because do you think that this is going to take some of the pressure off of their getting fiscal stimulus coming out of Washington, D.C.? Uh, just because as as these as we get more information on the recovery, it takes some of the pressure off of there being a massive stimulus bill? Uh, that remains to be seen. Uh, I, I hear talks are going really well. Obviously, I'm no longer on the official side no. uh, over at the White House anymore here at the campaign. I, I'm hearing some good news from the negotiations and the conversations. Look, I understand that, that the White House and, and Mark Meadows and, and Steve Mnuchin and Larry Kudlow have been working night and day to try and come up with something that um, you know Democrats will even uh, sniff at. Right now, they're, they're still on vacation, refusing to come back. I mean, I, I guess Pelosi has time to get her hair done uh, during a shutdown and a quarantine. But regardless of that, um, it looks like uh, you know the American people still need help. Uh, they still need assistance. The president forced folks to uh, to stop all of their their um, uh, evictions just uh, just the other day too. So he's taking bold action to make sure the American people are safe and protected at this time, and that they have some money in their pockets to put food on the table and clothes on their kids' backs, pay rent, pay the car note, all those things. I mean, we've spent trillions and trillions of dollars so far. Uh, uh, in this, and uh, that's why these job numbers today are so important. Um, we, we've got to continue to 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 move on the track of of you know lower regulations, lower taxes. That's what's really spawning on the economy because the president put such good policies in place that when this coronavirus, this unforeseen, unprecedented pandemic begins to move on the downswing and get out of this country, and the therapeutics come online, hopefully a vaccine this year as well, that uh, we'll be in prime position. Uh, to, to reach those record highs all over again. I want to focus on two uh, sectors in particular. Let's start with manufacturing. Uh, the, the, the Democrats have said that manufacturing was uh, in a slump before the pandemic. And a lot of folks, obviously, in battleground states very much care about manufacturing. What policies would the president enact in a second term? Hogan Gidley, National Press Secretary for the President's Reelect, specifically as it relates to manufacturing jobs. Well, first of all, it's rich that Democrats would talk about uh, the ills and woes of a, of a manufacturing sector when it was their positions that caused, um, you know, three and a half million jobs to leave American workers and go straight to China. It was the horrific NAFTA deal that kicked the American workers squarely in the teeth, crushed the American middle class that Joe Biden was all for and all excited about. Uh, killing 850,000 jobs. It's the Green New Deal that would kill 10 million jobs in the energy sector uh, as well. So this president came in, and in a short amount of time, we had about 700,000 manufacturing jobs come back, more jobs uh, in this country uh, than there were people to fill them, record low unemployment for African-American, Asian-American, Hispanic-American, women employed at record numbers as well. So uh, the president's policies need to continue. He's talked about Tax Cuts 2.0. Uh, we talked about that heading into the election year. It looks like that's something
something that that obviously won't happen as, as everyone's focused on uh, the reelect right now. Uh, the the Democrats refuse to have conversations about anything that that doesn't involve politics. Of course, that's not really a new thing for them. But still, um, it's those types of policies that got us to those record highs that we want to continue. I mean, let's not forget early on in the administration, it was he was he promised to cut two regulations for every one he put in place. There was an average there for a while when it was 22 regulations for every one they put in place. So that's the kind of thing that we believe spurs the economy on, and we're going to continue to push that. The president's been adamant about it, and he thinks that's what works. And I think the proof is in the pudding. And when it did work the first time again before the virus, we know it'll work a second time as well. I want to focus on energy. You mentioned energy. Uh, There was a big Democratic primary in Massachusetts where Senator Ed Markey this week uh, beat uh, the the more centrist candidate, Congressman Joe Kennedy the third, and in the same week you've got uh, Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden uh, in southwestern Pennsylvania saying that he is not against fracking. So I mean, do, is that especially in a state like Pennsylvania where fracking is so incredibly an important issue? How important from a strategic standpoint for your campaign is the issue of fracking going to be, especially in a battleground state like Pennsylvania? Uh, it's very important. Uh, and look, I think um, the Joe Biden record on on energy is is one that that most definitely needs to be challenged. Let's talk about uh, energy. This president, Donald Trump, unleashed energy production in this in this uh, country, allowing drilling in Anwar, allowing uh, pipelines to to run like they should. Uh, we saw for the first time in decades a country in, in the United States that is now a net exporter of energy um, and. And that does another thing for us, too. Forget the fact that we have cheaper prices at the pump or that it it costs less for us to heat and cool our homes. Um, It's a national security issue. No longer is this country beholden to the whims of of countries in the Middle East or uh, to Russia or China. Joe Biden wants to reverse all of that. And now he's trying to pretend as though he is okay with fracking. That's just not the case. He was pressed countless times during the Democrat um, um, uh, primary and said over and over and over, we're going to eliminate fracking. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not give any more permits for fracking. Well, that would crush the industry. That's hundreds of thousands of jobs in Pennsylvania alone. I mean, it's a really horrific idea about the energy sector. It would put us, uh, like I said, beholden to other countries for pricing, um, and also it would hurt jobs in this country. So, uh, you know, we're ready to have that conversation. If that's if that's what this election is going to be about, energy production and, and the jobs it creates, we're going to be in better shape than we are now. All right, and just one final topic. I mean, there's been so much uh, fodder in the Washington Press Corps today about that Atlantic article. There's some reports uh, as that uh, President Trump and actually nominee Biden might be at might be in the same part of Pennsylvania uh, to honor the uh, September 11th memorial in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Can you give us first of all? I mean, the the campaign is refuting the Atlantic article, correct? And the president's refuting it. Oh, absolutely. And and I was there, by the way. I was in Paris with the president in my capacity as deputy press secretary. And, um, you know, he, he never 
said that. I mean, it's disgusting uh, and cowardly for these quote-unquote sources to refuse to put their name to such a, a vile comment because they know it's fake. They know it's fictitious, and they don't want to be pressed on it. They don't want to be challenged on it. We already have now double-digit folks from the administration who would have had firsthand knowledge saying it was complete, uh, complete and total lie. The president's never talked about the military like that, and all you have to do is look back at his record. My goodness, he rebuilt the military, trillions of dollars for tanks and guns and bullets and rockets and, and planes and ships. Uh, he did that. He expanded choice for health care uh, for veterans like we've never seen before. He's the one um, who has done so much to ensure the VA is cleaned up, that they can actually fire people who weren't doing their jobs and serving the veterans, changing the rules of engagement that protected people in Afghanistan. Um, maimings went down like 500 percent. Deaths went down 100 percent because he changed the rules of engagement and allowed the military to actually fight and not be hamstrung. That's what the president's done for the military. Nobody else has done that. Uh, it was the, it was the um, sequester of the Democrats that caused uh, so much of the problems. They insisted that it include the military, and then they took money from the military, uh, shutting down some of their bases. That's the Democrat philosophy. It's not ours. It's not the president's. He respects those who have served. He respects those who have died. Uh, every single engagement he has has been impactful to his life. Uh, it's a meaningful situation, but he reveres uh, the the members of the military um, uh, just just with with a with a a height that I've not seen before. Well, politics isn't beanbag. This is one of those really just uh, intense, to put it mildly, political discussions that is or that people are talking about. But do you think? Uh, the president and Biden could meet. I mean, would he would he meet with with Biden at a at a nine eleven memorial? That's my last question for you. Because the Biden campaign seems to suggest that they're open to that. And last cycle, uh, uh, Hillary Clinton and of course then candidate Trump, they uh, they were all at the same uh, memorial service for nine eleven. I so I just figured I'd ask. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, okay. obviously, I can't predict the future, but, yeah. but I mean, look, I, I think it's one of the most significant days in American history, and it's, yeah. it's a somber, serious day. And I imagine that, that both candidates are going to, um, you know, participate in, in a in a, a memorial in, in some form or fashion, whether they actually end up seeing each other or talking. Um, you know, I, I just can't tell. Okay. Thank you so much. Hogan Gidley, I really appreciate your time uh, on this busy, busy Friday. Thank you, Hogan. Appreciate the time. Thanks so much. Anytime. He is, of course, the National Press Secretary for the President's re-election campaign. Much more coming up next. Policy and politics on a busy day for Wall Street and for Washington. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. This is Bloomberg. Live from our nation's capital. How do we reopen this economy? The latest on how this pandemic is impacting farmers. What does this do for the United States' relationship with China? Bloomberg Sound Off. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We're responding to this crisis and manufacturers are stepping up like never before. We're looking at 70 candidates for different vaccines. How do we make sure a pandemic of this scale never happens again? This is Bloomberg Sound Off with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Jobs number smashes expectations. What does it mean for the fiscal stimulus talks and a wild day on Wall Street, Washington and Wall Street seemingly on a collision course? We will get you the latest on that as well. As I mentioned, we're on standby for uh, President Trump's press conference. And what a wild day in Washington is the 2020 talk in full gear in full, full swing 
after that the Atlantic report that had the president citing four unnamed sources. Uh, the Atlantic report says that the president had some disparaging remarks for uh, veterans, and uh, this is something that the re-election campaign is forcefully hitting back upon, and no doubt, though, shaking up uh, this Labor Day weekend. We begin tonight with the big story. That is, of course, the economic numbers and the data that we got today, uh, plus a wild day on Wall Street. At the Labor Department, August increase in Americans entering the labor market helped drive the unemployment rate down almost two percentage points to 8.4%. That's better than all of the economists' estimates, though it's still well above the pre-crisis level. But still, 8.4%, 8.4% level unemployment. Uh, joining us on the Sound On Hotline is Maddie Duppler, founder of Forward Strategies, senior fellow at the National Taxpayers Union, and the former coalitions director for the House Republican Conference. All right, Maddie, we got a wild day on Wall Street, but positive unemployment numbers. Let's start with the unemployment, 8.4%. What gave? All right. So we finally are under 10%, which of course was the height of the unemployment rate during the last recession, the 0808. 0809 Great Recession. Um, that was really uh, the surprise here. The number of jobs added in August, 1.4 million, was right at expectations. But the number, the reason that the unemployment rate came down was for good reasons. Sometimes the unemployment rate comes down because people fall out of the labor uh, market. That's not what we want to see. That's not what we saw in August. In August, we saw people get pulled back into the labor market. You had the labor force participation rate go up. That's exactly what you need to have a robust recovery. Now, there's not to say that it was going gangbusters here, right? I mean, we still have not recovered half of the jobs or um, or just under half the jobs that we lost because of coronavirus. So there's still a lot of work to be done. And I think that there's a number of reasons that September might not be as rosy as August. But this is a strong jobs report. Like I said, that number came in expectations. And getting that unemployment rate below 10 percent uh, is significant because most economists thought that we would be at the lowest rate right now would be around 9 percent. So we're already looking a little bit better than most the expectations were back in the spring. It's remarkable because of the fiscal stimulus talks that are at an impasse and a standstill in the nation's well, you know, capital. Have, here's what I'll, yeah, here's what I'll say about that. I, I think that this is my challenge with the job numbers every month because I think that I, there's that old quotation, I think it's a Mark Twain quotation about data and facts and people using them to their own, to flex to their own narrative. And I think people do that with the jobs data because you can look at this one at one point and say, look, a million point four jobs. We've got the unemployment rate below 10%. Obviously, we don't need a ton of fiscal stimulus from Washington because the recovery is underway. Or you can look at this and you can say, well, this is the slowest pace of private employment job creation that we've seen since we got out of the bottom of the uh, the labor market in early March and April. So I think that both sides probably look at the data today and are using it to make their case. You and I have talked time and time again about how the situation is tenuous at best, even if the resiliency of the American economy and the American job market and American employers is on full display, that is not enough. We're, uh, Congress still has a responsibility here to act because we've got tens of millions of people who are still out of work because there's a lot of uncertainty on that road ahead. Get your facts first, and then you can distort them as much as you please. That's uh, the Twain quote from C to C that was quoted, of course, first by Rudyard Kipling. All right, let's take a listen about this unemployment rate and about the stimulus, because uh, Larry Kudlow spoke to my colleague, John Farrow, earlier today on The Open, 
after this bombshell, uh, shattering expectations on employment number, 8.4%. Take a listen to Larry Kudlow from the White House. Here he is. Today's number, 8.4% unemployment. I just want to note, I think that shows that President Trump's idea of a generous unemployment assistance plan that he's put as executive order, but not necessarily an extravagant one. I, I think he's been borne out to be exactly right. 8.4% unemployment is really the headline story of this uh, massive jobs uh, improvement report. And then he went on in that interview, Maddie Zuppler, to say, essentially, quote, why don't we pass a more modest package instead of something that goes into multi-trillion dollars of debt that we do not need and would be counterproductive in the long term? Maddie Dupler, you know all the, the, the ins and outs of the Republican caucus and the, and the, the various uh, levels of differences of agreement. So <laughs> can Larry Kudlow sell that to the more moderate wing of the Republican Party who are up there in the Senate or in the down-ballot members who are up for re-election? Well, you know, Kevin, I'm not sure that it matters because the negotiations right now have been between the administration. I mean, listen, they've been between the administration and Nancy Pelosi. Those are the only people talking uh, in Washington and are the only people who are involved in getting a deal. So Republicans on the Hill are going to have to hold their nose and agree to whatever it is the administration gets uh, House Democrats to agree to. Those are how the negotiations are playing out right now. Now, I do think it's quite silly how both Democrats and Republicans have decided that they have a top-line number that they want to stick with. Republicans, of course, wanting that to be lower than Democrats because they're concerned about the federal spending federal spending and the federal debt. Um, I think what we need policymakers to be doing is asking where we get the biggest bang for our buck and where taxpayers are going to get a return on the investment that they're going to make for relief efforts. And I think that if policymakers could frame the discussion in ways that they want a productive use of taxpayer dollars, that would require them to do a lot more negotiating than this back and forth about $2 trillion here, $3 trillion there. At the end of the day, no one cares how much money Congress spends if the economy can't recover, because at the end of the day, the economy is only going to do as well as we're able to support it to get it through this unprecedented contraction in economic, uh, uh, in economic activity. So, you know, it's... the negotiations have been have been a lackluster at best. Uh, my hope is that Larry Kudlow is whispering in the ear of uh, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin the next time he talks to Nancy Pelosi so they can get some kind of deal that can get through Congress. You know, it's 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 really remarkable just to see the, how you've got the Wall Street getting a windfall with their fees uh, in terms of investment banking, but still the, the wild roller coaster ride that uh, we've seen in the markets. And just to, to dive into my terminal for a second, U.S. stocks bounced back from a sharp sell-off today, but still closed at a two-week low, Maddie, as mega-cap tech shares sold off. Losses for Amazon, Microsoft, Facebook pushed the tech-heavy Nasdaq 100, 100 down more than 5% at one point, though it paired those declines to just over 1% as the day wore on and investors spotted Bargains, gains in the financial shares, limited losses in the S&P 500 index, which ended the week down 2.3% at the lowest level since August 21st. It's remarkable. Yeah, I mean, but I, Kev, I weigh in on that. Kev, listen to what you just said. August 21st, that was a short two weeks ago. And so you've got the market, you've got, mar- you got, I shouldn't say the market, you've got investors and observers melting down over the fact that turns out stocks don't only go up, they can come down because a stock and an equity price is set by the investment investors who are willing to pay that price for it. At some point, the 
they're not willing to pay and you know the amount where it just keeps yeah. going up so you know i think that right. the recalibration on tech stocks was coming um and i do think that particularly when you get good job data right. that's going to start putting pressure on some of these equity prices and some of these tech names that were really benefiting Maddie. from the shutdown economy stay because coming up you're going to join the panel for the next block and you're going to tell me what's on your radar because we got the president at 5.30 now, so we're on standby for that. I'm Kevin Cerilli. More next. What's on our radar? Find out. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cerilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. My name is Kevin Cerilli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. It's... Uh, Remarkable that we should note this, but both President Trump and Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden are going to be in Shanksville, Pennsylvania next week to honor the September 11th uh, anniversary date. It's unclear whether or not their paths will cross. I would note that back in 2016, during the 15th year uh, anniversary uh, of of the horrific September 11th attacks. Uh, Hillary Clinton, uh, then-candidate Donald Trump, as well as others, Rudy Giuliani, former New York City mayors, um, and others, they were all present uh, for a New York uh, 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 commemorative uh, issue. So it wouldn't be out of thought to think that Joe Biden and uh, President Trump would would see their paths cross, but of course, given the heightenedness and the negativity of this uh, wild virtual campaign season with regards to the Atlantic report. Who knows? Who knows? I asked Hogan Gidley. I, I put it right to him at the top of the show. He's the national press secretary for the Trump reelection campaign. He said, hey, yeah, he doesn't know yet. He doesn't know. Maybe their paths will cross. Maybe they won't. But uh, we'll, we're going to have to wait and see. It's time now as we await for President Trump. Speaking of waiting, President Trump is set to speak at the White House uh, at 530 Eastern time so we will go there when we get that but i want to i want to move up my favorite part of the show just because i I really want to make sure that our esteemed guests on this friday get their get their opportunity to tell me something that's on their radar so let's bring back into this conversation before she has to jump off and and perform all of her other duties maddie duppler she is founder of forward strategy she's a senior fellow at the national taxpayer union she's a former coalitions director for the house republican conference and she's one of the best in dc at going through all of these issues maddie what's on your radar do we have maddie is in fact one of these issues you got well got me? maddie you cut out so we got to have you restart maddie you're leaving us hanging what, what's on your oh, radar? Well, I said, Kev, was first thanks for that shout out, because what I'm going to do is I'm going to run down the thing that worries me most about the August employment report that we got today, which Such is that a downer on a Friday. Rate. Such a downer on a three day weekend. I need I'm some optimism. Maybe. I'm going to bring it up. But All right. I want people to be aware that labor force participation participation rate that I talked about. Yes. Um, for women. It was completely constant July to August for white women, for black women, for Hispanic women, constant across July and August. That means that the increase in that labor force participation rate is coming mainly from male workers. Now, what happened in August? Of course, kids were supposed to go back to school, and we know in a lot of places in the country that wasn't the case. So I think that that indicates, and again, one month is not a trend make, but I think that indicates that women are taking on a greater share of these child care responsibilities as they try to figure out what's going to happen with school, and that could make for a very uneven recovery if that trend does, in fact, materialize. So that's something that I'm watching. It was incredible to look at this data today and see just 
flat across from July to August for across those uh, those race categories with all women workers. I, I've never seen that before. Well, I mean, and, and even to that point, I mean, just the inequality that has that, that this has exposed. I don't care what economic indicators you're looking at. I mean, just to see how the 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 minority groups in this country disadvantage lower socioeconomic income in this country. Maddie, you and I have talked about this offline. I remember having FaceTimes with you in March talking precisely about this issue. I mean, it is, it's really, really staggering. It's not just in the United States. It's worldwide. Then you start getting no, into right. vaccinations. I mean, and people really, we got to play this forward. Once there finally is a, uh, is, a, is a vaccination in terms of in the market, think about countries that don't have as developed of an infrastructure for vac- vaccination execution. I mean, here in the United mm-hmm. States and, and in Europe and in Western countries, we're debating you know, rightfully so, how do we execute a vaccination, a mass vaccination to make sure that people get it in an efficient manner? We already have the infrastructure built, right? Everyone can go to their their uh, pharmaceutical company, their local, local drugstore to get a flu shot. Uh, but in, in other countries around the world, they don't even have that infrastructure. So it really is remarkable just how exposed the world is, the global economy is as it relates to this. All right, Maddie, that's great. Can I, I have a fun one. Now that you were so down, which I which is sorry, important. I'm using it's the important. optimist. I'm using no, the optimist. But it's important, so I don't want to I don't want to make light of the of the important issue that you that you raised. But here's mine: drive-in movie theaters. Here we are on a three-day weekend. Here we are on a three-day weekend. And Maddie, I, I think this is great. Once fading, this is on the Bloomberg terminal. Once fading, drive-in theaters stage a pandemic era comeback. Designed for the suburbs of 1950s America, the drive-in theater found a new role in the summer of 2020 as a COVID safe site for collective entertainment. And all you have to do if you're in the DMV is go, uh, go on a search engine and put it in to find one. But it's it's really, really f- interesting to see how drive Have you been to one, Kevin? I have not. I'm dying to go. And oh, only- man. They were doing one at Union Market for a couple months uh, at the beginning of all this. Well, get yeah. I mean, and I, it's 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 really remarkable. So, the Parkin Theater, the first. When do you think the first drive-in movie theater opened? Nineteen hmm, fifty. No, nineteen thirty-three. Jersey. Oh. The Parkin Theater. Leave it to the Jerseys. Uh, nineteen thirty-three. <laughs> but the idea didn't really take off until the fifties, and then there were two thousand, and in nineteen fifty-eight. It was a peak of 4,000 lined the highways of drive-in movie theaters of an increasingly suburbanized and car-centric nation. But in October, there was only 305 in the, in the entire United States. There's actually a really famous one. There's that minutes. many? Yeah. But there's a really famous one out in, um, out in uh, Virginia that uh, the folks can go to. It's actually one of, the, one of the biggest ones. But I don't think we have the data on how many there are now, but I'm sure... It's it's skyrocketed. So we've just gotten the two well, minute listen. warning. We, we, okay, uh, great. Well, so I'm going to let you go. But I appreciate okay. you calling in. I forget that we're on the of radio, course. and I appreciate you telling uh, what's on your radar. We got the two minute warning for President Trump. I want to bring into this conversation Brandon Neal. He's a Democratic strategist who previously worked in the Obama administration, uh, and uh, he's a former political director for the DNC in 2016. Uh, Brandon Neal, talk to me about what you are going to be listening for at this press conference with President Trump. 
Hey, but first, thanks for having me back on. Gonna really appreciate it. Anytime. This. Anytime. I mean, absolutely. But thank you. And happy Friday. Look, yeah. I am looking for what I think every other American is looking for in terms of just some guidance, some structure, and some leadership. Uh, we are 61 days out for the from the election, and we are going backwards. This is unfortunate. I mean, the Atlantic story that was presented, uh, that came out, shows that we have a president, unfortunately, who spends more time uh, talking about the dead, more more time uh, talking about the, the lack of uh, sacrifice, uh, no sanctity and no respect for our military, our men and women who sacrifice their lives. This is unfortunate. So I want from him uh, to explain and explain what exactly he was talking about. You know, it's very clear that he is very caught up in terms of uh, his, I don't know, his fetish, I would say, lack of a better word, with the late Senator McCain. Uh, but to talk about, really clear that up, what he's talking about. And also talk about something that he has not talked about. He's talked about Kenosha, talks about uh, 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 the law and order president. He's not once mentioned anything about the family of Jacob uh, Blake in terms of, uh, you know, checking in. Um, and being that type of leader and making sure he's okay as well, too. But then also hearing more about the economy. While we have uh, a job uh, loss uh, deficit, we are still 11.5 million people unemployed in this country. Yeah. You were listening to President Trump speaking at a news conference uh, where the president uh, went through a series, series of comments as it relates to the economy, the president taking a p- political Victory lap as it relates to that unemployment number, 8.4%. He says that, quote, you don't shut down when we're setting records. We're rounding the corner on the virus. We are rounding the corner on the virus. Uh, He also said, quote, we had the greatest economy in history prior to the China virus coming in. Uh, so that was uh, President Trump. Just to reset here, my name is Kevin Cerulli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Maddie Dupler is still with us. She is the founder of Forward Strategies, senior fellow at the National Taxpayers Union and the former coalition's director for the House Republican Conference. We also are joined by Matt Brooks, who is a Republican strategist and the executive director of the Republican Jewish coalition. Matt, you know, I, I, here in Washington, as you know, so much uh, so much of the conversation, Maddie, I apologize, so much of the conversation has been about this Atlantic article, and so much of the week had been about law and order, but I'm wondering if, it, if any of that is drowning out the improving economy. What do you think? Well, so for one, Kevin, this is a challenge when I'm on with Kevin Walling on your show, and we got two Kevins and a Maddie, and now we've got a Matt and a Maddie and a Welcome Kevin. To it's my life, you know, we got we we need new names. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I've definitely been called worse on air, so it's fine. Anyway, getting back to the question of what's breaking through, you know, I think that is the pivotal question. We've talked about this on the show before. Typically, voters' attitudes about the economy crystallize in the summer. Well throw that out the window this summer, which has just been a crazy, crazy time to think about anything beyond your own survival uh, when we're in the middle of a pandemic. So I do think that as people are allowed to return to some sense of normalcy in their lives, 
uh, that will relate to how they feel about the economy. Now, that's different, I think, than in a normal presidential year, where how you feel about the economy has to do with your local job market and how your community is doing in terms of employment. Like, those things really matter a lot. Wage growth really matters a lot uh, in local, or excuse me, in, in presidential elections, typically, because that's how people feel the economy. I think, really, the new measure might be, you know, how normal people feel come November. How much of their life do they feel like they've gone back to um, comparing themselves to the beginning of 2020 to where they are in November. That might be kind of the new economic metric for voters as we head towards the presidential election. All right, now we have Matt Brooks, who I want to bring into this conversation. Matt, so much of the week was about law and order, and now it's about veterans' issues. On a day in which the unemployment number drops, smashes expectations to 8.4%, but this is really a potential vulnerability for the president, even even if you know they're refuting the article in the Atlantic, but what it does, and you know this, Matt, you know politics. This is this is a way to drum up all of the comments that the president has made in the past about late Senator John McCain and others. Look, I think that you know this story is 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 a total fabrication. I think the fact that uh, there is nobody except unnamed uh, anonymous sources in this article seriously raised the uh, credibility of the entire piece. And as you know, Kevin, and as you've seen, John Bolton, uh, who obviously has been no friend of this president, uh, has came out and said that he doesn't uh, believe the story to to be true. Um, and you know, I think this is you know a, you know a, a one day news story at best, and likely a half news a half a news cycle, especially uh, with the jobs reports and the economic uh, uh, data that's coming out today. And I think uh, this is a uh, um, you know this is a, a chance by the Democrats to to grasp at some straws and try and change the debate. The reality is it's not going to work. So, but but. But it hits in the sense that it brings up the previous comments. I mean, and this is, and it, it allows for Democrats to turn the page uh, on law and order. Would you agree? I mean, from a purely political strategic standpoint, am I wrong on that or no, Matt Brooks? No, I think because I think no, I think that that the military and and the soldiers and and you know our men and women in, in uniform love this president, and I think he has been incredibly supportive, and uh, uh, the troops know that. Uh, uh, that he is a supporter and a fan of theirs, and he's got their back. I mean, here's a guy who wants to uh, bring the troops home. Here's a guy who uh, uh, doesn't miss an opportunity to travel around the world and visit with the troops. Um, he loves the military, and it's clear to the people who are, who are serving that he's rebuilt the military. Uh, and so I don't think this, this is going to be credible in the eyes of, of veterans who, you know, with what he's done with reforming the VA and getting the VA uh, back to some level of, of efficiency to serve uh, our our great veterans. Um, I just don't think this is a, a charge that sticks. All right, Maddie, come in here. Just but not 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 on the comments or the allegations, but on the on the strategy behind it uh, for both campaigns. Maddie Doubler. Right. So I think that remember presidential politics are coalition politics. So the challenge for the Biden campaign is really how they get the progressive left, which is more and more of the voting proportion of the Democratic Party, how they get them excited to turn out to vote. Um, the math for Biden, if you're looking at the map, he needs some constellation of Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Florida. How does he play those states? Well, one way to do that is to try and get a younger, urban, progressive vote out. Uh, does this story do that? Does it really inflame that portion of the base? I'm not sure that it does. Now, if the play is in the suburbs for moderate independents and 
potential Republican voters, then, yeah, this is something that, again, raises the ire of a lot of moderate Republicans who really chased at the last four years of maybe agreeing with some of the things that the president does in policy, but then in practice and in style really having a challenge with it. That might be the case, but I don't think that that's really the primary uh, concern. I don't think that the Biden campaign gets up every day really thinking that independent and moderate Republican voters are their path to the presidency, I think they're looking at the whole coalition and looking at their base and thinking, how do we get people excited to turn out? Because remember, that was a challenge in 2016. Enough people stayed home that Democrats didn't really even seem to have, I mean, I shouldn't put it that way, but I would say they have a fighting chance. But, you know, you look at the numbers and you think like, wow, people would rather stay home than vote for either of these candidates. That should instruct both these parties how to play 2020. And I'm not sure that Democrats have gotten the message yet. So, you, so you're saying it's it's purely turnout? Well, I would say that yes and no. What I'm saying is that people need to be excited enough to turn out to vote. So yes, in that sense, it's turnout. But I don't think that if you see, I think that the Trump campaign is going to be able to recreate its coalition and then potentially add to it. So it can't just be turnout. It has to be about what the constellation of the coalition looks like for both Democrats and Republicans. I think the Republican coalition will look pretty similar to what it looked like in 2016, which was some of those Obama voters and some of those swing states that I mentioned being compelled by this outsider populist message that the Trump campaign had. But I do think that there's a possibility that you see Republicans who were like, mess on Trump in 2016, able to come that way because they like the policies they've seen over the last four years. Compare that to Democrats, who right now don't really have a policy platform that's really getting people jinged up to vote about. They don't necessarily have anything that unites the party because they have these internecine wars that we saw a lot of in 2010 on the Republican side, where you've got a really, really inflamed base going after kind of the moderate uh moderate core of the party. Um, and the question is, how does a candidate who comes from that moderate wing, who has stayed his entire can- who has stayed his entire career on being a moderate guy who can reach across the aisle, how does he feel to those people so that those people don't stay home? I'm not sure the Biden campaign has figured out how to do that yet, because right now the Democrats' message is just Biden is not Trump, and that should be good enough for any Democrat. All right. Stay, panel's going to stay. Panel's going to stay because we got another block coming up. And I want to know what, what's on Matt, Matt Brooks's radar. Matt and Maddie featuring Kev. I feel like I got to do nothing. It's Friday, folks. We made it to Friday. Much more policy and politics with Maddie and Matt coming up next. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Joining us on the panel for today, two of the greats, 
Uh, Matt Brooks, Republican strategist and executive director at the Republican Jewish Coalition. Maddie Duppler, founder of Forward Strategy, senior fellow at the National Taxpayers Union and former coalitions director for the House Republican Conference. Uh, we have Brandon Neal, the Democratic strategist, but he had to jump off. He's starting his three-day weekend early, you know, but uh, he's welcome back anytime. Um, all right, Matt, what's on your radar? Give me something in the weeds. Give me something geopolitical. I want to know something on your radar as we head into a three-day weekend. I've got off Monday. What, uh, what, what's on your radar? <laughs> well, the two big things on my radar, setting aside uh, electoral, presidential electoral politics, is the Flyers winning in Game 7 <laughs> against the Dodgers Family Cup playoff series and uh, football starting on uh, September 13th in our Philadelphia, our beloved Kevin Philadelphia what, Eagles. Okay, but, wait, but, but wait, before you tell me something, before you tell me something political, I want to ask you this because actually I haven't been able to figure this out. And, and the local, are they going to allow tailgates? Because they're not allowing fans in the stadium. But uh, you know Philly, like I know Philly, they're going to be packing that stadium parking lot and tailgating. It's going to be like a drive-in NFL game. Yeah, I don't think the mayor's going to. Yeah, I don't know what the the mayor, uh, what Kenny is going to be doing there. I don't think uh, Kenny knows what he's going to be doing. Have I said too much about pretty, the mayor? Yeah, they've taken a pretty restrictive. Yeah, they've taken a pretty restrictive policy. So uh, we can hope, and uh, if there are tailgates, I'll see you there, Kev. So we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll it's going to be a good. All right, what's on your uh, what's on, on your on radar? A serious note. Yeah, on a serious note, I think today we saw yet another uh, diplomatic uh, success from this president as it relates to uh, uh, the Middle East with the uh, recognition by Kosovo of, of uh, Israel and, and agreeing to move their, their embassy to Jerusalem. Uh, this comes on the heel of the historic agreement uh, that uh, the president brokered between uh, Israel and the United Arab Emirates. Uh, and reinforces again that this is the most pro-Israel president in history. And um, for my organization, we are in the midst of launching a $10 million effort uh, targeted to the Jewish community, and I'm going to make a Babe Ruth pointing to the stands prediction to you uh, and your listeners that uh, President Trump will do better uh, among Jewish voters in 2020 than he did in 2016. Well, what, why, why, does this, why is the Kosovo announcement important? Because I do want to cover this, and I'm glad you brought it up. Why, did, why is that such an, an important announcement? You know, it, it, again, in and of itself, it's part of a pattern we're seeing. We're seeing uh, Saudi Arabia allowing uh, Israel right. flyover rights over, over Saudi territory. Uh, we see the same thing with Bahrain allowing uh, Israel to fly over we see the normalization with the UAE uh, and now Kosovo, which is which is a Muslim nation, uh, you know, to a radical transformation of the old border uh, in the Middle East, and Israel is the, the direct beneficiary of it. And is important is this all comes along uh, an axis uh, between uh, uh, Sunni and Shia, and really this is a, this is an effort at building a broad. Uh, swath of Arab and uh, Arab nations and Israel uh, to stand up to Iran. And, I mean, and it, it really, it, it, I, I made this point earlier to Bloomberg Surveillance earlier in the week just about how Iran has really been a driving force for so many of these countries and look no further than the announcement today uh, with Serbia and Kosovo that they are normalizing economic relations. And of course, this is a massive, massive development uh, for the two Balkan nations that have resolved a decades-long dispute that once had... Mili I mean, we, we forget about this. We have such short-sighted geopolitical memory 
but the U.S. military intervened in the region just a couple of decades ago. I mean, and now you've got Serbia, Kosovo, and as you rightfully point out, uh, because of Iran and, and, and whatnot. So it's, it's another major geopolitical shift that has occurred in as little as two and a half, three weeks, uh, but, and, and likely will, will outlast the uh, whomever, whomever wins in, in November 3rd. That's a, that's a great point. I appreciate you bringing it up. You know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a geopolitical nerd Thanks, at heart. Kev, which, you know, yeah, one of the things, Kev, just to, 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 to put a fine point on it, this is something that only Donald Trump could do. Joe Biden, uh, <laughs> here's because the of the position of the, of the, uh, here's the politics of it. Because the Obama and, and Biden administration uh, forced the, uh, and wanted to have the Iran deal, it forced a wedge uh, between uh, uh, the United States and our, our allies in the Gulf states. And, and once this president made very clear our opposition and uh, taking a strong stand against Iran and allowed them to have the trust and confidence, uh, our, you know, our Gulf state allies to have the trust and confidence in the administration to stand shoulder to shoulder with them uh, against Iran, but also to take the risks for peace that we're seeing now. Yeah, fascinating, fascinating. All right, Maddie, you, because you're just, you know, it's, it's Maddie Duppler's Jobs Day Friday. I mean, we should stop calling it Jobs Day and just call it Maddie Duffler Day. What uh, what is uh, on? What's another thing on your radar? Well, I have so many things on my radar, uh, Kev. Let's circle back real quick to the stock market and what's happening there because it's all related, of course. Maybe it's not, but this is my hypothesis. I'm going to put it out here for one of my things that I have on my radar. Is that you know, in a world long, long ago, namely in 2019, when we got good economic news, the market would freak out because the concern would be that the Federal Reserve would raise rates, right? Yeah. Now, I think we're in a strange paradigm where when we get good economic news, we might be seeing a little bit of that in tech stocks. And why is that? Well, it's because we've had so many big tech names that have benefited from this strange era of lockdowns and being at home. I and mean, when that's been the thing that's been dragging the NASDAQ forward for the last several months. Um, so we might be seeing a little bit of that. Like some of this equity anxiety might have come from the fact that there are signs that there's recoveries and recovery in the economy. There are signs that some of the employment landscape is returning to normal. And the other side of that coin then is that these tech names don't have much justification for being on the tear that they've been on, besides the fact that the Federal Reserve has uh, committed to injecting tons of liquidity into the market, but that's true. You know that helps all stock prices, not just the tech names. So that's what I'm watching. That's something that I think we might see a little bit more connection as we wade through the next couple set trading sessions here, and we see what happens in the market. Uh, that's okay. You know what's on my radar? I'm sticking with this thread, this thread of drive-ins. Because Keith Urban, who we play on this program for the intros and outros very frequently, because Keith Urban is one of my is my favorite country music artist ever. He is the first country music album that I ever purchased. He did something really cool. We were talking about drive-in movie theaters. He did a drive-in concert. He did a drive-in concert. Urban Underground, he called it, and it was in um, it was for uh, Tennessee. He's based in Nashville. For the Vanderbilt Vanderbilt Health uh, Hospital, frontline workers and about 150 cars, all very socially distant, and he and Live Nation sponsored it, and they did a, a concert for Keith Urban in a drive-in lot, and they did a concert. I thought that was really just awesome, and it's it's it, I looked at the the Bloomberg terminal, 
And there's actually a story on this. And one of the first driving concerts of the current pandemic era took place in mid-March, and it was at an L.A. supermarket. It's really interesting that live music, which I miss when I tell you I miss live music, I miss live music, and not even, you know, Bruce and Billy Joel and all that, but even just, you know, dive bar bands. I just miss that. But it'd be really cool if, if some of these bands started packing some uh, some empty lots. Maybe we'll start to see that in Washington, D.C., Mayor Bowser. Maybe we'll start to see some bands doing uh, some drive-in some drive-in lots. There, there, There's Keith Urban. Matt Brooks, Maddie Dubler, Keith's going to take us out. Have a great holiday weekend. I'll be back on Tuesday. Enjoy it. Be grateful. Be grateful. Be grateful. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio, and I'm incredibly grateful to uh, everyone who listens. Thank you. Have a great weekend. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.